0: This is lecture number four in our undertaking this study. And, uh, I want to say again something I have said before, and it's as much for the purpose of those who get this, may, may get this, uh, off of sermon audio by internet rather than you that are local. But I say it anyway to all. This study that we're doing, I am not attempting in this study to make what I might call academic theologians out of view, uh, this is a church. this is a body of believers. Uh, we're not trying to achieve uh, an academic theological status. If we were, we would need another teacher for sure, not me, and uh, I'm not attempting to do that, nevertheless, having said that, I am interested in and attempting to to make you more skilled students of the Bible. And that is a thing to be sought for and to attempt to achieve in any congregation, to uh, have the people to be thorough and honest students of the Scriptures. Far too long have we had Protestant and I use that in its broad, broadest application, Protestant churches operating by Roman Catholic uh, methods, in that they rely on the priestcraft to interpret the scriptures for them. It ought not to be every believer in every congregation ought to be a serious student of the scriptures for themselves 2nd Timothy chapter 2 you know it quite well in verse 15 study to show thyself approved unto God <clears throat> a workman that needeth not to be ashamed <clears throat> rightly dividing the word of truth i don't remember how many years ago it was Several years ago, it was my wife that first drew my attention to the uh, specific Greek word uh, used there for dividing, rightly dividing. Uh, uh, Transliterated into our English, it's uh, orthotomeo, which means to cut straight. And it's interesting that that word uh, is different to cut here divide to cut rightly cutting the word of God is different from the word copto, which means to cut something by repeated blows that is hacking in contrast to hacking. Which is the other Greek word. This word. Means to cut. Straight. And with one decisive. And deliberate blow. And the the key, key. Words there are decisive. And deliberate. This word to rightly cut. The word of God is to parse it out by decisive and deliberate blows. So the emphasis there, all things considered, grammatically considered, the emphasis there is that the word of God by every, every saint not just the ministry <laughs> or the Sunday school teacher, but everything is to be divided decisively, deliberately, cut rightly. And, uh, so that verse is just pregnant with significance for, for every believer. In the lecture today, <coughs> just, those are just general comments and Going back to our study here, uh, in the uh, lecture today, <coughs> uh, Goldsworthy <coughs> in uh, chapter four <coughs> uh, begins by reviewing uh, where we have come from, and I will lay that review before you. Uh, three, he says, three characteristics have now been presented in our search for unity and structure in the Bible. These are, number one, the literary forms, number two, the historical framework, and number three, the theological structures. Each must be given its due weight, be taken into account in the process of interpreting biblical texts, since the really unique feature of the Bible is that it is a revelation of God. And of its his purposes. It is unfortunate that so little emphasis is given these days. To the study of biblical theology. In recent years there has appeared a number of books written. At the non-academic level for the ordinary Christian reader. Which deals with surveys of the Bible as literature. With biblical history and with Christian doctrine. But there's hardly a book to be found on the subject of biblical theology. Now this was written in 1981. That statement was made in 1981. (coughs) And he is lamenting the fact (coughs) that the scripture is not considered from the point of view of biblical theology versus systematic. Theology. Now, what is the difference? <clears throat> so, of course, it is only appropriate that Goldsworthy take up then the difference between biblical and systematic theology. Now, I certainly have no intention of doing anything like an exhaustive treatment of that subject. It's a huge subject, and I'm certainly underqualified to undertake it, even if I wanted to. But it is not in our interest to to undertake it in all of its nuances, but it is in our interest to at least make some observation of the matter. So he says, we need to be aware of the distinction between Christian doctrine And biblical theology. The approach to biblical interpretation adopted in this book is based on the method of biblical theology. Christian doctrine, or systematic or dogmatic theology, involves a systematic gathering of the doctrines of the Bible under the various topics to form a body of definitive. Christian teaching about man, sin, grace, the church, ordinances, ministry, and so on. This systematizing of theology depends for its validity on the interpretation problem being satisfactorily satisfactorily handled. In other words, when you go to lay out systematic theology, the value and accuracy of that is going to rest on your particular method of interpretation, your hermeneutic, your problem of interpretation. <laughs> that is, if you're going to do a systematic theology. Now, each, of course, relies on the other uh, Goldsworthy goes on to make this point. It's not like you can just put systematic theology over here in a category totally isolated from biblical theology. The two are, of course, overlapping and interrelated and interdependent. Of course they are. We are not, we're just simply attempting to show you that there is a difference there is a distinction between them and we'll make that a little bit more clear later while each relies on the other yet you need to know that the systematic approach is limited because the bible itself is not structured in that way the bible itself is not a systematic theology textbook. That's what he's simply trying to say. Notice again on page 45, he somewhat takes this up in the paragraph. He says, however, it is important to see the limitations of this approach. The structure and contents, he's talking about uh, systematic theology, the, the structure and contents of the Bible are not
1: systematic
0: there is no one section which sets out, for example, the doctrine of sin, and then there's another section on the doctrine of salvation, and then there's another section on the do- You could take a theology, a systematic theology textbook, and just look in the index, and you'll see what he's talking about. It's laid out by categories of doctrine. Well, our Bible isn't laid out like that. You, you look in the index of your Bible you don't find in the index, oh, here's everything that the Bible has to say about the doctrine of justification. Let's just turn to that page and we'll get that hold of. That's not how the Bible's laid out. So all he's saying here is you need to be aware that when you're talking about a systematized theology, systematic theology, you understand that the Bible itself is not laid out in that way. So you, you have to understand those limitations. He goes on down there and to the bottom. He says biblical theology, as described here, is dynamic, not static. That is, it follows the movement and process of God's revelation in the Bible. That's biblical theology. It just follows the movement and progression of God's self-revelation. It is closely related to systematic theology, that is, the two are dependent upon one another, but there is a difference in emphasis. Biblical theology is not concerned to state the final doctrines which go to make up the content of Christian belief, but rather to describe the process by which revelation unfolds and moves toward the goal, which is God's final revelation of His purposes in Jesus Christ. Biblical theology seeks to understand the relationships between the various eras in God's revealing activity recorded in the Bible. The systematic theologian is mainly interested in the final article. The Statement of Christian Doctrine. The biblical theologian, on the other hand, is concerned rather with the progressive unfolding of truth. It is on the basis of biblical theology that the systematic theologian draws upon the pre-Pentecostal texts of the Bible as part of the material from which Christian doctrine may be formulated. Now I'm going to restate that Statement because that's a powerful statement and one that might even raise some eyebrows among ourselves, including me. And we'll discuss it. But let's just look at the statement he's saying. Let me read it again. It is on the basis of biblical theology that the systematic theologian draws upon pre-Pentecostal texts of the Bible as part of the material from which Christian doctrine may be
1: formulated. <laughs> Let me try to just restate that. One who is pursuing the study of the scripture as a biblical theologian will not
0: hesitate to look prior to Pentecost
1: for instruction on Christian doctrine. Do you agree with that? I I hope you do. I certainly agree with that.
0: I hope that you don't think that Christian doctrine, and i.e. the church, can and does only have its origin at Pentecost. Uh, I I think I shared this not long ago with you all. I certainly shared it with the pastor who was involved. But I heard an adult Sunday school teacher recently, I say recently, a few months ago, I heard an adult class Sunday school teacher attempting to define the church. His attempt was being launched from the book of Revelation in which he's trying to establish a very definitive timeline for all the events described in the book of Revelation. In his attempt to do that, he ran into... (laughs) Inevitably, the issue that you have saints being referred to who go all the way back to Moses and up through time, up through the life of Christ, up through the quote church age and then up through the end times events and then off into eternity. And the dear brother was struggling to fit all these people into a very decisive time frame. And of course, the whole thing got quite muddled, and he lost his way, and eventually threw his hands up and just simply said, I don't know. I just don't know. Were these saints? Were these saints in the church? Were those saints in the church? Uh, is the church, where is the, where is the church? Well, well, can part of it be here, part of it, so- and, and the whole thing got so muddled, the poor brother, I felt sorry for <laughs> him. He, he, he just abandoned hope. Well, what was his problem? His problem was he's not operating in the realm of biblical theology. If he had understood biblical theology, he would understand that this is an unfolding revelation of God,
1: of himself, over time. Over time. And he, I suppose they believe, I know I was taught,
0: that when the scriptures, when when the Lord Jesus said, he has come to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The idea is that that building started with the apostles. There was no church. There was no church. There was no building before the apostles. Well, I think that's a fallacious doctrine. And it's certainly not a product of Biblical theology. Uh, in fact, I think it's a product of absolute and total error for that matter. But but if you take that statement that Goldsworthy has made here, it is on the basis of biblical theology that systematic theologian draws on the pre-Pentecostal texts of the Bible as part of the material from which Christian, and he has that in, he has that of course in italics. Christian doctrine may be formulated. Now that may be a very new and bizarre concept to some of you. And Then again it may not. To some of you that's old. That's an old horse you've ridden for a long time. <coughs> what say you? <laughs> Any comments there before I go on to my next thought? All right. <coughs> You see the basic difference, I hope. And I'm going to read you something else here, not from Goldsworthy. Systematic theology, and this is surely a very non-academic and maybe even an unworthy way to describe this. But I want you to grasp at least the the kernel of of the concept. Systematic theology takes a scripture and says, let's collect all the places that we can find with
1: reference to this doctrine. Sin. Or something. And we're gonna, we're gonna
0: accumulate all the data and then we're gonna make definitive statements on this doctrine. That's what systematic theology does. Biblical theology says, let's just take the record. And let's read it in its progression from the start to the end and see all of that as a, as a progressive revelation God makes of Himself. And of course, we get to the culmination of that where? In the person of Christ. That is the culmination of his revelation, of himself. He said of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's nothing more to be seen. And of course, the rest of the New Testament is nothing but inspired texts that continue to expand our understanding of what? Christ. Of Christ. And the first statement in the book of Revelation is that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so the culmination of the whole, <clears throat> to a biblical theologian, the culmination of the whole of the revelation finds its, finds its finality in the person of Christ. But now, on this subject of theology in general, again, that's why I introduced this lecture by saying I'm not attempting to make you academic theologians, but these are things that will be useful for your study as we move forward. In uh, Charles Hodge uh, has a book of systematic theology. Volume 1, Eerdman's publications, reprinted in 1977. The one that I have is a reprint in 1977 of Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology. In his introduction to his Systematic Theology textbook, Hodge has this to say. In every science there are two factors. Facts and ideas. Or facts and the mind. Science is more than knowledge. Knowledge is the persuasion Of what is true on adequate evidence. But the facts of astronomy, chemistry, or history do not constitute science of of those departments of knowledge. None does the mere order, nor does the mere orderly arrangement of facts amount to science. Interesting. Historical facts arranged in chronological order are mere annals. The philosophy of history supposes those facts to be understood in their casual relations. In every department The man of science is assumed to understand the laws by which the facts of evidence are determined so that he not only knows the past but can predict the future. That, by the way, is how chemistry works, right? When they develop uh, uh, a compound, plastic, for example, uh, it wasn't a, a, a sudden disaster that happened in the lab, and then they figured out what happened. No, they predicted through chemical equations, they predicted that if they made these changes and combined these out, they would produce this product. And they did. So there's that part of science. The astronomer can foretell the relative position of the heavenly bodies for centuries to come. The chemist can tell with certainty what will be the effect of certain chemical combinations. If, therefore, theology be a science, it must include something more than the mere knowledge of facts. It must embrace an exhibition of the internal relation of those facts one to another and each to all. It must be able to show that if one be admitted, others cannot be denied. <laughs> Somebody looking at me like, like I've got three heads. Let me just read on. The Bible is no more a mere system of theology. The Bible is no more than a mere system of theology is no more a mere system of theology than nature is a system of chemistry and mechanics. We find in nature the facts which the chemist or metaphysical philosopher has to examine and from them to ascertain the laws by which they are determined. So the Bible contains the truths Which theologian, which the theologian has to collect, authenticate, arrange, and exhibit in their internal relation to each other. This constitutes the difference between biblical and systematic theology. The office of biblical theology is to ascertain and state and state the facts of Scripture. The office of of systematic theology is to take these facts, determine their relation to each other, and to other cogent truths, as well as to vindicate them and show their harmony and consistency. This is not an easy task or
1: one of slight importance. The systematic theologian has is really put
0: to the task because it presupposes that he already has biblical theological understanding. And now he's got to take that and
1: find the independent individual facts and collate them and
0: put them, con- condense them, and organize them, and structure them, and state a doctrine. I think one of the most interesting things in my life, pers- my personal experience, it was a shock to me <laughs> as a young man, this was many, many years ago, to find out that what we take as a given for doctrines, Pick any one you'd like to choose. Say the doctrine of of, uh, verbal inspiration, for example. It was a shock to me to realize that that had not been a doctrine clearly hammered out and understood from the beginning of time. That there was actually a time when men worked that out. And it was canonized, if I could use that term and accepted as, I think that's a proper use of that term, when a doctrine becomes canonized, it's accepted as a doctrine of the scripture. Not all doctrines of the scripture have been equally understood through all time. That's the work of theologians. This is the work they do. This is what they've done. And systematic theology specifically has done that. I'll read you just another thing. He said, it may naturally be asked, why not take the truths as God has seen fit to reveal them and thus save ourselves the trouble of showing their relation and harmony? (laughs) This harkens back to my fundamentalist days. That's what I would have said back then. I would have said, look, uh, what is all this systematic theology anyway? I mean, this is just man's doing. This is just man's academics. They're just entertaining them. Why are we going to fool with this nonsense? Just take the Bible and just take what it says. He says the answer to this question is in the first place
1: that it cannot be done. (laughs) It cannot be done. Because you
0: see, it's a progressive revelation. Because it's progressive, if you are unwilling to locate yourself on the timeline of that progression, then you're not being fair with the total revelation. Does that make sense? You've got to be fair with the total revelation. If I snatch a verse out of Jonah, And then proceed to propound the doctrine
1: from that verse. With blinders on to all of the rest of Revelation, I'm bound to err. You cannot
0: interpret the Bible that way. You have to know where you are on the timeline of God's progressive revelation.
1: Is that fair? I mean, does everybody see that as a, a reasonable thing?
0: He goes on and says, Secondly, a much higher kind of knowledge is thus obtained than the mere accumulation of isolated facts. He talking about the fact that when you start putting these isolated incidences together... And showing their relationship to one another. Now you're getting the full picture. For example we would take. And this just popped in my head. I, I don't have it written. But we would take.
1: Uh, faith. The doctrine of faith. Ruth. We could. Looking back.
0: From our New Testament. Standing and all that's taught to us about faith, the doctrine of faith in the New Testament, we can go back and look at Noah and talk about the great faith of Noah, that he trusted the Lord for all those years, to do that work, and we can look back on that in that way, but it is very unlikely Noah had anything like. A systematic doctrine of faith worked out. You you understand what I'm saying? So when you, when you isolate a text, you gotta, you gotta look at it in the context of where it fits on the timeline of God's self-revelation. And if you don't, you're not being fair to the text. Okay. The difference between systematic and biblical theology. <clears throat> now, I will just give you this and then we'll almost at the end here. On page 46 there is a repetition of my what I have called my theme, my purpose for teaching this class. Here's the theme down to the bottom of page 46. We have seen that the Old Testament is not a mere textbook of the history of Israel as we understand it today, but it is a theological history that it is, that is, it reveals God. How can we characterize this history so that we are able to see the real unity within it? I suggest we look at the Old Testament As a history of redemption. That's the whole theme of my purpose in these lectures, is to show you the Old Testament as a history of redemption. In other words, the key to the Old Testament is not the part Israel plays, as important as that is, but the part God plays In redeeming a people from slavery and making them his own, the first approach would be to reduce the Old Testament to an example of ancient national history. The second interprets Israel's history as part of God's redeeming activity to man. So, in all of your studies of the whole Old Testament, this must be the first preeminent thought before your mind. What does this study, what does this text say to me about what I now know to be the progressive revelation of God in redemption?
1: That is the only important question. Now, To close us up today, I told you in
0: the very beginning there is an appendix at the back of each of these books, these three books, the trilogy. There is an appendix B, and it has questions that are for study purposes and class purposes, and I told you I would not be assigning them nor using them necessarily, Uh, only when I feel like there's something worthy. Here's a little exercise that I think is worthy. On page 142 are the questions for chapter 4. Question number 3 says this. How does the history of redemption figure into the text Acts 7, 1 through 53? And I reworded that question. You could ask it this way. What is the Old Testament's relevance to that New Testament text? So somebody look for me. Some folks, some of you look. Look at Acts 7. Just peruse it. don't have to get into great detail, but just peruse it. Take a look at what's being talked about in Acts chapter 7. And entertain this question for me. How does this Old Testament
1: history of redemption figure into the content of that chapter? Somebody give me
0: some ideas. There are a number of different things could be said there, but just
1: give me yours. Well it's most considered application for Eden's defense of the preaching of Christ before the rulers of Israel. And then it reviews for Israel's history in summary. Uh-huh. Uh the Abraham and Jewali and uh, seeks in that message to demonstrate Israel's constant rebellion against God uh-huh. throughout history. And of course these rulers would have been and were aghast. At the notion that they were a rebellious people. Mm-hmm. But he brings it to this summary that you have at the enemy the you have refused his message, you have paid his prophets, and you have killed them, up to and including the Son of God, who came to you as the prophet that Moses had prophesied, and you have killed him too. And you are stiff at and hard-hearted and rebellious people. And except you repent, you ought to deal with the judgment. Mm-hmm. And of course for that you just do So he's dealing with...
0: Summarily dispatched. <laughs>
1: he's clearly dealing with the history of, if you will, know, Israel's response to is, God's redemption work without their so if Stephen
0: had not been a biblical theologian, there would have been no sermon, there would have been no Acts chapter seven at all. Because he was relying entirely on God's previous dealings with Israel to bring to bear a message to those who were currently Israel and God's intended dealings with them. So you see the relevance here. You see how Stephen acted as a biblical theologian. I mean, if he had been a dispensationalist, how very different would his message have been? He could have said, look, I know this was all a great tragedy in our history, but that was before. <laughs> forget about that. Just forget about all of that. It's a new day. You've got a new gospel now. And you guys just need to get on board and we'll go forth. You know, that's ridiculous. But it would have been a different message had he been dispensational. He wasn't dispensational. He was a biblical theologian. And he understood the continuity as John described it very well for us. He was pressing that very fact, the fact of the continuity of God's progressive revelation of himself to his people specifically in this context. Anybody else want to comment on that?
1: (coughs) Assumes, we the the cedar the of The of this is quite different This is not national Right, spiritual. spiritual. Yes. You, know, you, by of this you have never even people you reduce this prevention to that that are going to a statement. Mm-hmm. Not. Right. You're not just the again. are again, doing it now. This is why we are the track. But it is not the mm-hmm. thing to It is not the work that This is a spirit. Mm-hmm. Like in the, room, in the I think one of the most valuable statements that has been made in this lecture
0: to take away with us is that the bi- is that statement and that consideration that the Bible is
1: not merely a collection of theological statements. It's far, far more. It is not just a collection of theological statements
0: or the history of a nation. It is a progressive, it's a record of the progressive revelation of God to man. To men before there was an Israel. To men after he has abandoned Israel for a season, to men after he comes back to Israel, all that time span is spanned in the pages of this revelation. And that is what the book is about. <laughs> that is what the book is about. And one of the great tragedies, and the reason I've undertaken this study, I hope it to be somewhat brief, but the great tragedy of our day is that so many, almost wholesale, have dismissed that view of the Bible. And they are only using the book, Pulling out this or pulling out that. And you can pick any group you want to. We often talk about the fundamentalists because that's where I came from. But you can talk about the charismatics. You can talk about the modern uh, uh, quasi-neo-Calvinists. Uh, you can talk about any group you want to. And you can find an overwhelming characteristic is that they have pulled out this text and pulled out that text and pulled out that text and they're no longer seeing a biblical theology in the Bible. (laughs) Alright, I hope we've learned some things that may be thoughts that can just take a seed
1: away with you and water it and, and may the Lord give it fruit in the days ahead.